Yeah, that's great. I don't want to throw that out there and it not be true. Um, so come next week. We're going to have fun with that. And uh, now I think, I think that's it. I think I, I think I crushed all those. All right. We got it down, right? The last thing we're going to do before we move into our message is, as you guys know, uh, every week we spotlight a different city pastor. They're a part of our Southbrook City Lights initiative. And so we want to give it up right now for um, Sally and Kurt Kleiner. If you can, guys, are they, are they still there? Yeah, you moved on me. I was like, where are they? There they are. Give it up for them. Threw me off there. I was looking over here from last service, and now you're here. Are we doing it? Are we doing this? We, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm, I'm down for it. Let's do this. Let's do the selfie with everyone in the crowd. Give it up, crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, did you hear how sad some of them were? Like, so sick of selfies. They're like, ah, my kids do it all day long. Anyway, anyway. Hey, uh, we just want to, you know, as you know we do, just spotlight you guys and the work you're doing for the kingdom. If you guys don't know, Kurt and Sally are, are absolutely make up the backbone of what we do here at Southbrook. You can always find them, man, praying over people. You know, they give people rides to church that need it. They've been a part of cutting grass for people that need it. Yeah, give it up to them. Um, very much, very much um, kingdom workers. Uh, they're part of the prayer ministry. Their recovery is a big part of their life. And I said last service, I'm, I'm pretty sure they have never met, missed a recovery meeting. To be there to sponsor and pray for those who may need it. Just really cool. And, and they spend a lot of their time in the North region. That's where they serve. And so you can find them in the atrium afterwards. There's the, throwing up their North signs. Yeah, throwing up our sets this weekend, right? And so you can meet them in the atrium and talk with them at the North kiosk. But we just want to, man, just surround them in prayer. So if we can... Pray, join us in prayer as we lift up Kurt and Sally. Dear God, I thank you for these two. Um, I thank you for the heart they have for you. I thank you for the redemptive, restora- restorative work you have done within them. I thank you that uh, they are just here to serve and their mission field and, and the North region, but not just there, everywhere they go, they take you with them and they look for ways to interact on your behalf with those around them whether through prayer or just service and giving people rides. I thank you for all the things they do to make your light visible. We thank you for them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, brother. brother. Turkey. Turkey. All right, all right. So if you've been with us, we've been in this series, Christism, Christism, and Charlie made that word up, so I have to make sure I'm getting that right. Christism, Christism versus atheism. And we've been through a a wide variety of topics. We have covered reality, truth, evil, hope, pain, morality, and last week he covered contradictions. And so this week, I get the privilege of carrying it on as we talk about science versus faith. Um, And when I think of science and faith, inevitably, almost always, I go to to the Academy Award-winning movie, Nacho Libre. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. (laughs) But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Ah! 
Felicidades. <laughs> so good. Oh, man, it gets me every time when he leads into the doorway. Oh, goodness. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, you're welcome. If you haven't seen that movie, I apologize. <laughs> Maybe you don't like it. But that, that theme plays out a couple times in that movie where he talks about salvation and he just says, I believe in science. And so I don't know, much like Nacho and his sidekick, maybe uh, we see this play out greater in our culture, right? That we absolutely see science versus religion. That these two schools don't play well together. Uh, that if you are a person of faith, you can't speak into the things of science because you're essentially like this Pollyanna, pie in the sky, thinking there's a God behind everything and you can't speak objectively into the things of science. Right. And on the other side, those in the faith side of things may feel antagonism towards the people of science because we have a, a view that they're all non-believers and all they're trying to do is just prove that our God exists and they're militant and they're angry. And that's not true, but we may feel that way. In fact, a recent survey surveyed a large swath of scientists and found that over 54% believe that there is a God, which I don't think we, we think that way. In fact, this long history of these two being at odds, and we're going to walk through that today. We're going to talk a little bit about that. I think the problem arises in, in two groupings, one for the believer. Now listen to me and hear this. That when we dismiss, the problem is when we dismiss the revealed truths of science because they don't fit into our perceived interpretation of scripture. And we bash the scientists for their discoveries. In fact, I'm not going to lean too much into interpretation today. And that's the crux. I would argue that is a lot of the conflict on the church side with science. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow, Austin and I, on the weekend hangover, about Genesis 1, 2, because that becomes a big crux versus science and faith. We're going to talk about interpretation and what that means when we read scripture. And so we're going to do that tomorrow on the weekend hangover. If you have questions, send those in, but tune into that. Uh, we'll be talking about that. But the other problem is on the scientific side. When scientists overreach and use their discoveries to definitively argue that there is no God and to bash believers for thinking otherwise. We gotta remind ourselves what science is. Science as a collective institution aims to produce more and more accurate natural explanations of how the natural world works, what its components are, and how the world got to be the way it is now. I am a science dork. Uh, that was a track I was going through high school until God intervened in college. Um, I was AP in science. I love studying. I love reading. Um, and, and I was going down uh, this, the field of biology, probably marine biology. Um, love it. Every time I studied and read and more discoveries came, it absolutely pointed to my creator. But maybe for some of you, you've experienced the other side. Maybe you have a child that has grown up in the faith. Maybe you grew up in the faith and inevitably life took you off to college. And maybe as you went down a science trek, you came face to face with a professor that felt like their whole mission was to deconstruct your faith. And so from a militant side of things, you see how these two don't play well. And so I want to talk today is, can these two live in a, in a uh, you know, just in harmony? And so you got to know about me. I believe in science, absolutely. But science falls short because it doesn't have all the answers. We know this. It cannot speak to life's greater questions. Who put me here? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? What's the, you know, the problem of good and evil, morality and ethics? As leading geneticist and Christian, Francis Collins states, the meaning of human existence, the reality of God, the possibility of an afterlife, and many other spiritual questions lie outside of the reach of the scientific method. But here's also what we gotta know before we step forward, and this is me. 
I don't know if you're there. I believe all of truth originates with God. All of it. Whether it's through scripture study and prayer or it comes through a scientific discovery, I believe it's all God's truth and it all comes from him. And so there are many that hold this way and we're gonna talk about them throughout all of history. And so what I wanna do is posit something for you today that when it comes to faith, specifically religion and science, there are generally four views of thought that go along with this relationship. And it comes from Ian Barber. He has these four models. He was an American theologian and physicist. He posited that science and religion relate to each other in one of these four categories, okay? So if you take notes, write them down. If you have your notes on your phone, these are kind of the crux of what we're focusing on today. He says one, which plays out the most, this is the one that gets all the publicity, is conflict. This model assumes that religion and science are incompatible and that only one of them is a legit source of knowledge. We are familiar with the militant atheist types like Richard Dawkins who deride any kind of religion sentiment. For them, religion is a delusion. The only true knowledge is scientific knowledge, which is subject to testing and objective analysis. It is easy to see how people like Dawkins hold to the conflict model of science versus religion. But Barber also argues that extremists and the biblical literalists do the same. For them, the Bible is the only source of truth and scientific knowledge must be interpreted in light of what the Bible says. If there is any perceived conflict, scripture trumps science. And we're gonna look at an example of this here later on. The idea that, uh, for those of the faith, that the Bible is, is, is like a science textbook for us. And so when discoveries come along, we can't wrap our minds around it because that's not how the Bible interprets this. But what we first gotta understand is that the Bible is not a textbook on science. It's a book on God's story. And we're gonna talk more of this a little bit later. That the goal of the Bible is not to get into the processes by which God creates. But the ultimate goal is that God creates. And so conflict is the one that absolutely gets all the publicity. Like I always say, it's because outrage sells. So when you get headlines of science versus faith all over, you could Google science and faith and it's almost always an article that these two are at odds because outrage sells. The second one, and I'm gonna use this illustration of these, of these siblings, right? I used my, my, my kiddos, Braden's 11, Addie's nine. And in the first illustration, it's like, you ever have those days where they're just at odds all day long? Fighting back and forth. It just seems like so much tension. What, what happened to the, to the two peaceable siblings living together? That's a far cry. And just, you have those days where it's nonstop, 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 nonstop conflict. We'll see in the second model, it's called independence, that, that religion and science live independently of one another. This typology states that science and religion can both be true as long as they are kept to their separate domains. Both science and religion can be true as, at the same time as long as they respect their limits and stay true to their area. Okay, it's like that conflict with my kiddos, right? What do we do in that conflict? Maybe you do the same thing, right? Brayden, go up to your room. Addie, you go to your room. Don't interact with each other. Stay apart from each other. Brayden, you do your thing in your room. Addison, you do your thing in your room. Don't ever cross that hallway. That's the idea behind this. Religion, you stay in your room. Science, you stay in yours, okay? Religion, you talk on the things of the supernatural and the metaphysical in your room, but you don't cross the hallway to talk science because you don't know what you're doing, right? So science, you stay in your room and in your lane, you do, you know, you utilize your scientific methods, your objective truths, but you don't go across to talking to things of the spiritual world because you have no idea what you're doing. So they stay independent and isolated. The third one is dialogue. 
dialogue position is a modification of independence view and holds that religion and science are mostly separate, but acknowledges that in some cases, an explanation in one field will have implications for the other. Sometimes the two perspectives may inform each other, but they're mostly at conflict. So this idea is, again, Braden, you're in your room. Addy, you're in your room. Braden is so frustrated because, oh my gosh, I have to go across the hallway to actually talk to Addison. I hate doing this. I don't want to do it, but I really need her insight on one little thing. And so Braden steps out of his room, goes across, and asks Addie. That's the idea behind this, right? That generally they hate each other, religion and science. And they hate the fact that I have to step out of my room to actually engage with them about something I'm doing in my space. That's the idea behind the dialogue, that, hey, there might be a a conversation back and forth, but generally, no, we don't want to do that. And the fourth model is where I am. This model is called integration, right? In this view, both religion and science have authority to reveal truth. Moreover, the two perspectives are inextricably intertwined. Once One's theological perspective shapes how one uses and interprets science, but science can also influence how we view God and his revelation and actions in the world. That these things are overlapping. That for me, God is behind all truth. So whether it comes in a scripture form or a scientist discovers something, man, thank you, scientist, you pointed me more to God. I am literally the frustrating person that an atheistic scientist would have in mind. Comes to me, hey, look at my discoveries, Eric. Yeah, that's awesome, God is incredible, right? And that guy's like, oh, shut up. Right? Like, right? I would be the one they don't want to come to because it points to God for me. But this battle has played out long before today. Long before today. There is a long history of science versus religion. In fact, I think many of us would agree today that we might view science as the intimidator today. But years and years ago, the church was the great intimidator when it came to science. I don't know if you knew this, right? Well, let's go back to the early 17th century to the Galileo affair. You guys remember this? He was a brilliant scientist and mathematician, and in 1608, the telescope was invented. Galileo got word of this and quickly uh, created his own telescope and quickly made a number of astronomical discoveries. He observed four moons orbiting Jupiter. That simple observation, which we absolutely take for granted today, presented significant problems for the traditional Ptolemaic system, where all heavenly bodies were supposed to rotate around the earth, right? This discovery, along with countless other discoveries, ultimately led Galileo to the conclusion that these observations could only make sense if the earth revolved around the sun. His agreement with the Copernican model would place him squarely in direct conflict to the Catholic Church. I say for years, for centuries, the idea was that we were at the center of the universe, that's the way God created it, and anything else was blasphemous. And the reason for this, like I mentioned earlier, is that interpretation of scripture is generally the source of conflict. For example, the Catholic Church at that time read Ecclesiastes 1.5, the sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The very literal reading that the earth is at the center. They read Psalms 104. You place the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. Again, we don't move. Psalms 93, the world stands firm and cannot be shaken. This is how they interpret scripture, quite literally. When many scholars now understand that this isn't a literal interpretation, that the writer was not meaning this literally. But it didn't change the fact 
that led to their belief that we are at the center of the universe, which none of us would argue today. But you have to understand that over 400 years ago, this was a question that revolved around salvation. This was a big deal. Listen to how some of the church fathers at that time spoke about Galileo's findings. Dominican Father Cassini was very much not fond of this theory. In a sermon directly targeting Galileo, the friar insisted that geometry is of the devil and that mathematicians should be banished as the authors of all heresies, which I wouldn't disagree because math is terrible. Let's ban that thing. Get out of here, you blasphemers, right? This is crazy, right? Listen to some of these things. Another Catholic priest claimed that Galileo's conclusions were not only heretical, but atheistic. And this, one's, this one takes the cake. Other attacks included a claim that his pretended discovery decimates the whole Christian plan of salvation. Seriously. This is similar to today. What would, and, I, and I said this this week in the office. We were hashing this out. Austin and I said, man, this might be controversial, but this is what it would be equivalent to today. What would be equivalent today would be like if we went down to the Cincinnati Zoo, we had a great time, we got, took in all the animals, right? We got to Gorilla World, we got to see the gorillas, right? And had a great time. But let's say I went back home that night, laid my head down, and something un, unexamined before, something never seen before, takes place in Gorilla World that night. As that gorilla is fast asleep, a process plays out that we've never witnessed. The process of macroevolution, where that gorilla turns into Dave. And Dave walks out of that cave in the morning. It's on the cameras for all to see, but all the kids coming to see the gorillas just sees Dave in a loincloth waving. Like, what? Now, I ask this because this is a thought, you know, this is a thought experiment. If that happened, what would that do to your faith? This is no different than 400 years ago. Would you say this questions all of salvation and God's salvific plan? Would it shatter me? Or would it say, oh, you know, if that's true, that's God's way of doing it. He's behind all truth. But that is what happened 400 years ago. You see, the Bible's not a science textbook. The Bible's about God's salvation plan. It's not about the way God chooses to create or the processes behind them. Because of this, because of Galileo's findings, he was subsequently tried before the Roman Inquisition in 1633. Again, here's the thing i got to address, too, because many narratives posit this story as if Galileo is this atheistic scientist, which is, couldn't be further from the truth. Right? That's a narrative that's false, if you hear that. He was a Catholic, God-fearing man. So was Copernicus, who had this model. In fact, Galileo was quoted as saying that, I believe that God has given us reason and curiosity to discover these things in the world that reveal him. Lo and behold, would he ever imagine him coming up against his faith system, his church but that's what happened. And so in 1633, ultimately he was forced to abjure, curse, and detest his own work. He remained under house arrest for the remainder of his life, and his publications were banned. It wasn't until 1992 that John Paul, Pope John Paul II apologized for everything. So 359 years later, I'm sure that went really far with Galileo and his family. Right? But hey, he apologized. That's good. That's good. But as you see, guys, the, 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 the Inquisition lasted, I think, roughly 400 years or so. And the goal of that was to seek out heretics and heresies, many heretics' lives being taken. 
all because of interpretation. You see, this is a story as old as time of science versus faith. While that was the 17th century, one of my favorite church fathers, a person I love studying and reading, is Augustine. Uh, he was a bishop in Hippo. What a great town. Right? Augustine has immense worth and weight with his mind and his thoughts and his quotes. Um, he stu- he's very well read. He studied. Obviously, science wasn't science then. It was natural knowledge. And this is something he addressed in the 4th or 5th century. Literally this. Listen to his words. He wrote a commentary on Genesis. Augustine gives his greatest advice on a deal with the Bible and its relation to nature. Here it is. The purpose of the Bible is redemptive, said Augustine. God gave us the Bible to instruct us in the knowledge of salvation, not science. Augustine asked what scripture teaches about the shape or the form of the heavens. Are the heavens spherical or flat like a disc? Which was a big deal then, right? Or does it matter? And this is how he responded. Many scholars engage in lengthy discussion on these matters, but the sacred writers with their deeper wisdom have omitted them. Subsubjects are of no profit for those who seek salvation. And what is worse, they take up very precious time that ought to be given to what is spiritually beneficial. His solution to the problem of conflict between science and faith is simply humility, both in the interpretation of science and the interpretation of scripture. I think our world could use a little bit more humility. By recognizing that the Bible is more about redemption and salvation through Jesus, the hope of eternal life and the kingdom of heaven than it is about the motion and orbit of the stars, their size and relative positions, and the predictable eclipses of the sun and the moon. These words may seem as if Augustine disparaged science, and he has been interpreted that way by secular-minded readers. He did not think natural knowledge was worthless, only that it was inferior to the knowledge of God. Augustine was saying that the biblical authors were not giving a definitive theory of the heavens in a scientific fashion. And so I said that earlier about God's truth. I absolutely ripped that off from him. I was like, man, that is so good. He said, because he absolutely believed that God is the author of all truth, and that truth cannot conflict. And so he is the author of all of it. And so for the next part of our time, here's what I want to do. I want to share with you my story of how science absolutely just enveloped me, spoke to me that God the creator through, the different, through a few discoveries that, man, while they came out and me reading through those, I was like, man, this screams of God the creator. And so maybe these will be a reminder for you if you're a science geek like me. If not, hey, it sh- man, it should leave you all inspiring. I love astronomy. And on the astronomical level, you have people of the faith throughout history. Isaac Newton was one. He was an English mathematician, a physicist, astronomer, theologian, and author. Did you know he wrote more books on biblical interpretation than on mathematics and physics? The first evidence of a cosmic beginning came in the 1920s when astronomers discovered that light coming from distant galaxies was being stretched out as if the galaxies were moving away from us. Soon after, Georges Lemaitre, Belgian priest and mathematician, proposed that the universe is expanding, deriving the notion mathematically from Einstein's theory of relativity. When Einstein and Lemaitre met that same year, Einstein told him, your calculations are correct, but your physics is atrocious. Einstein did not question the math, but he could not accept his findings. It was only a couple years later when Edwin Hubble discovered astronomical evidence of expansion. Lemaitre's theory was confirmed. Einstein, along with the rest of the physics community, was convinced. At the same time, a more existential question was born out of this. If the universe is expanding, does that mean it originated from a specific point in time? 
1931, and now a legendary paper published in the Journal of Nature, Lumatra answered yes. The universe began as a primeval atom, he argued. Today, this idea is better known as the Big Bang Theory. And when I first read this, it blew my mind because I did not have the understanding that a Catholic priest was behind the theory of the Big Bang Theory. I think for many, I don't know if that's you or others, I know for a period of my time, I was raised in a way that this was a a hard thing to, a hard pill to swallow if this was reality, the Big Bang Theory. But that God absolutely, as Lumatra said, is behind, could absolutely be behind this process. That God spoke and bang, came into existence. It's It's a fantastic read. How about on the physical level? Physicists have discovered that we live in a kind of Goldilocks universe. Indeed, since the 1960s, physicists have determined that the fundamental physical laws and parameters of our universe have been finely tuned against all odds to make our universe capable of hosting life. Even slight alterations in the values of many independent factors would have rendered life impossible. As former Cambridge astrophysicist Sir Fred Hoyle argued, a common sense interpretation of the data suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics to make life possible. I read uh, a few months back a book called The Language of God by Francis Collins. Francis Collins is a leading geneticist, a Christian, but he, he spearheaded the Human Genome Project. And listen to his words in that book. He says, striking feature from the human genome comes from the comparison of different members of our own species. At the DNA level, we are all 99.9% identical. How powerful. I mean, like, think about this. Absolutely, people are diverse. Our our skin, our, our culture, our background. But here's the thing. At the DNA level, we're not as diverse as we think we are. 99.9% identical. That similarity applies regardless of which two individuals from around the world you choose to compare. Thus, by DNA analysis, we humans are truly part of one family. Population geneticists whose discipline involves the use of mathematical tools to reconstruct the history of populations look at these facts about the human genome and conclude that they point to all members of our species having descended from a common set of founders. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That's kind of what our word says, right? And the last one I'll use is the biological level, which was the tract I was going down. Douglas Axe is a, is a biologist and a Christian. He wrote a book called Undeniable, if you want a book to check out. Alistair McGrath is a popular molecular biologist and a theologian and pastor. Discoveries in molecular biology have revealed the presence of digital code at the foundation of life, suggesting the work of a master programmer. After James Watson and Francis Crick elucidated the structure of the DNA molecule in 1953, Crick developed his famed sequence hypothesis. In it, Crick proposed that the chemical constituents in DNA function like letters in a written language or digital symbols in a computer code. Thus, even Richard Dawkins has acknowledged the machine code of the gene is uncannily computer-like. Bill Gates explains DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. We know from experience that software comes from programmers. We know generally that information, whether inscribed in hieroglyphics, written in a book, or encoded in radio signals, always arises from an intelligent source. And so I wanted to take the last part of our time and what I wanted to do was there was a, a message that absolutely impacted me when I was younger. I think it was in college uh, from a man named Louis Giglio. 
he did this message called Indescribable, and it was super powerful. And it spoke to me because I love science. And he had all these images come up on the screen of, of our universe, uh, images that came from scientific discoveries. And during it, he spoke this message or the facts of all these images that were coming up to obviously point to our creator. And so I want to take it and I want to shift it and change it to the way Eric would like to do it. And so you're going to see some images pop up. And what I want you to do is just lean in and look and listen. Because I want to read scripture over these the whole time. Be edified, be encouraged, be, man, just all inspired by God, our creator, and the words of scripture. So let's do this. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Romans 1.20, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. I love this in Job 12. Just ask the animals and they will teach you. Ask the birds of the sky and they will tell you. Speak to the earth and it will instruct you. Let the fish in the sea speak to you. That's for Charlie. (laughs) For the life of every living thing is in his hand and the breath of every human being. Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Amos 5.8 says, It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. Psalm 19, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Psalm 8. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? This next one is a personal favorite. Um, that back towards the end of the 1900s, it was 1980s, crossed over to the 1990s, we sent out Voyager 1 and 2 into deep space to just image deep space. And just before NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft left our solar system in 1989 to take atmospheric readings from interstellar space, the late astronomer Carl Sagan, then a member of the mission's imaging team, encouraged officials to turn the camera backward to capture one last snapshot of Earth. You see us? And this next one, you'll see us better. There we are. Making it known that such a photograph would offer nothing of scientific value, they complied. What they captured was the first portrait of our planet from the edge of its solar system 3.7 billion miles away, an image of the Earth measuring less than 0.12 pixels, a soft dot sitting in what happens to be a beam of preferential light. Sagan said this. Sagan was a secular humanist. He didn't believe that there was a God at all. But later he gave the image its notorious name, the pale blue dot. Guys, will you leave that image up there for me? Listen to his quote about the pale blue dot. He says this. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. 
On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Listen to his final paragraph. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And our obscurity and all this vastness, here it is. This is how he wraps it up. There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And this is where it is, science versus religion for me. Because if Sagan was standing right here, I'd say, but someone did. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ entered a pale blue dot and died for us. If the sun is the center of our solar system, the earth is the epicenter of the cosmic drama. God existed before this mode of dust was suspended in black matter, spinning around a hydrogen bomb of exploding gases to light it half a day. In him, all the dust of this vast cosmos found its beginning, finds its glue, and in him we find the end and aim of this creation all along. The whole purpose of this expansive cosmos is for Christ to be demonstrated in the full beauty of his works and person. Colossians 1.15, all things were created through him and for him. As I look at that image, I'm always thinking, gosh, suspended on God's fingertip. Where God looks upon this, not like Sagan looks upon it, and says, yes, this pale blue dot is broken. There is suffering, there is pain, there is ugliness. And that's not how I intended it, but in spite of that, I am going to enter into that pain and suffering. I'm going to show them how to live, to follow my son, and my son will then sacrifice his life for everybody on that pale blue dot. For the hope of glory, both now and the future. That you were created with immense worth and love and value. That we're not suspending haphazardly for nothing. Pray with me. Dear God, I thank you for images like this. It's just powerful countless images that constantly scream of your beauty, your creation, your work, your uniqueness, that all of these things around us are created both here and in space and in our greater universe, but none of them has nearly as much value and worth as us.
We thank you that you knit us together in our mother's womb, as Psalm says, that you knew of us sitting here before the foundations of the world and that you screamed to us from heaven in the person of Jesus that I love you, that you have a mission and a purpose and I sacrifice myself for you so that we can walk hand in hand now and into eternity. We thank you for that and we love you and it's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Southbrook.